Hey, everybody, welcome to Investing in Cannabis. I'm your host, Brandon David, as always. Thank you so much for joining us. There are a lot of podcasts in the world. There are a lot of weed podcasts in the world, and you're here with us, and I appreciate that. Great episode today. We have George of MJ Unpacked or MJ Brand Insights. Uh, MJ Impact, of course, is the event that I've been talking about on the show for a couple weeks, May 18th through the 20th in Manhattan. It's for retailers, investors, uh, brands, and it's going to really shape the future of East Coast cannabis. As you know, New York, New Jersey, everybody's coming online, so it's going to be very, very exciting there. Uh, George has an interesting past. He was one of the original organizers of MJ BizCon, which is, of course, the event in cannabis, uh, and he did the first MJ Unpacked in Vegas alongside of it. Um, so very interesting strategy there, and now we're moving into the second event, uh, I'm going to be out there, too. I'm going to do some talks or some podcasts or something. It's going to be really great. George was really great. He formerly of Dope Magazine, really, really knowledgeable guy in the industry. Uh, I learned a ton. You're going to learn a ton. Tune in, listen up, get acquainted. Hey, before we jump into the episode, if you listen all the time and thank you for listening all the time, do us a favor, write us a review. Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you listen to it, thank you for listening and please do write us a review. It helps a lot. Thanks, guys. Let's get into the episode with George of MJ Unpacked. George, so nice to see you, man. How's it going? Welcome. Hey, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me on today. Um, Pleasure to see you again. Absolutely. Excited to jump into events and a whole bunch of other great topics that we're going to talk about. But let's not bury the lead. You've got a very cool event coming up called MJ Unpacked. Tell us about that. What is MJ Unpacked? Oh, man, it's, it's, it's been a journey. And, uh, you know, it's something that uh, when I got in the cannabis space back in 2014 and uh, was president of MJ BizCon and built that company up, you know, I always knew that this, you know, cannabis is ultimately a CPG or consumer packaged goods industry. Um, and, you know, the most important trade show in a CPG industry is going to be focused around brands and retailers. And, you know, really saw an opening um, and, and kind of an unmet need in the market that, you know, there wasn't an event that was really catering to the needs of the brands and the retailers on a national level. And part of the reason is because we don't have a national CPG market yet, but I, you know, it's it's an I want to say it's an inevitability, but then again, like you know, ten years ago when we said, "Oh, safe banking should pass soon," we still don't have it. Um, you know, hopefully, it's not going to take take ten years to see federal legalization. I mean, there's always bills coming into the Congress. Um, whether or not we can get one passed here sooner than later, we'll see. But um, you know, really, the premise around this is that um, you know we saw kind of a kind of a lack of kind of hospitality focus around events that seem to want to sell more booths or tickets and not really focus on how do you create successful outcomes for people. And so we really designed this event and, and COVID provided an opportunity for us to really kind of deconstruct the event experience um, where we can thought, thought through what are the things that people love about events? What are the things they don't love about events? Um, people hate waiting in line. Um, and so, you know, if people register for our event before our advanced deadline, which is um, on April 22nd this year, which so I don't know when this is going to air, but we're recording this on the 21st. Uh, yeah, this is the 21st. So hurry up. <laughs> yeah, um, we won't we won't really flip that over until Sunday night anyway. So you have a couple extra days. Um, 
But, uh, you know, if you register in advance, we'll mail your badge to you so you don't have to wait in line. It helps reduce some of the congestion in our event. Um, and just, you know, it's about creating a very welcoming space that people can walk into. Um, you know, we designed our event with a lot of soft seating. We built this big lounge at our first event that we did in Las Vegas last October that we'll have in New York as well with a lot of soft seating because, you know, really what where deals get done isn't by getting your badge scanned in an aisle, but really being able to sit down with somebody and have a conversation with them. The other part that really creates that productivity is making sure that everybody in the room is qualified. Um, so our attendance is exclusive to cannabis CPG brands and retail executives of title and manager hire or accredited investors actively investing in cannabis. And, and what we kind of mean by that, like just to kind of clarify, I mean, if somebody is a licensed operator, if you're in the delivery space, it's kind of an extension of the retail, but it's kind of a unique model. So that certainly qualifies to come. Um, certainly distributors are an important part of the ecosystem and they're certainly welcome to come as a licensed, you know, operator in the space and cultivators, you know, as soon as they throw a, um, you know, a label on that flower and put it, put it in a jar and put it at a store. I mean, that is a consumer packaged goods brand. Um, it's just, uh, it's, it's more in this raw state as opposed to being a processed product. Um, so it's kind of like, I guess it's kind of the equivalent of getting your um, a block of cheese versus uh, Velveeta slices. I don't know. Um, that may be one way to look at it. <laughs> uh, and you were uh, nice enough to uh, let the media come as well. You, you gave me, of course. Message, which is nice. Oh, and, yeah, uh, listen, media is wicked important. Like you're the ones that are out there talking to people and people can listen to and hear about what's happening in our industry. Like um, you're part of the pulpit. So, so anyway, and we'll be there again. Yeah, May 18th through the 20th in Manhattan. Um Tell us a little bit about what we should expect there. So, you know, the thing with New York versus Las Vegas, I mean, when we did our event in Las Vegas, um, as you know, we did it during the same time as MJ BizCon, which I had previously run and built. Um, you know, it wasn't that we were trying to steal any of their audience. Really, the, we just recognize that so many, like, decision makers go to Las Vegas during that show don't actually go to the show anymore because there's not a return on objectives to them. And they're hanging out at the wind of the Cosmo where they're getting a suite or they're going to the after parties. Um, and, you know, moving forward, you know, we'll be standing alone in Las Vegas. We've got some really exciting partnerships we're going to be announcing very soon. Um, and New York's a little bit of a different market. I mean, you know, New York hasn't legalized, um, you know, as an event producer, we had planned New York dates out a year and a half ago. A um, year and a half ago, everybody thought that the license would be issued and the state would be selling legal weed now. But, you know, besides that, you know, New Jersey's obviously just issued a bunch of licenses and just started selling uh, cannabis today, um, adult use cannabis today. And you know, you Connecticut, yeah, woo -woo. Um, you got a bunch of other markets, you know, obviously that collectively, when you look at that East Coast market is massive, right? And New York is, is, is so important, I think, in our ecosystem of what's going to happen on the federal level. I mean, with all due respect for all of the uh, House of Representative members that are part of Congress from California because of its huge population size, New York is pretty influential on what happens in Washington as well. And certainly some of the most of the, a lot of leadership comes out of the, the New York um, state. Um, so, you know, what we're doing is we're certainly making our event available to people that are intending to apply for licenses in the New York market or in the New Jersey market that may not yet have been activated because we also want them in the room. We do have some additional screening requirements to make sure they either have a letter from their CPA or attorney, or maybe a licensed application firm that just identifies that they are financially 
positioned and intend to move into the space. Not all of them will get there, but to bring all these people together in the room, that everybody in the room is a decision maker, going back to the investors, we're not looking for somebody who's got maybe a high net worth and has a portfolio of Curaleaf and Cresco Labs in their, you know, Charles Schwab account or whatever. We're looking for people that could have an impact and potential of writing a check into the space. And this, we can talk about this a little bit more, Brandon, you know, so much of the disparity in the industry right now around, you know, cannabis operators is you've got a lot of the independent people that are just, there's not a way to, not, not a, a large amount of ways that they can finance their growth of their operations. The big players, you know, certainly are getting, you know, senior secured debt funding from a lot of big players in the market, but there's kind of that huge gap there. And, you know, without capital, um, how do we grow an industry? It's very difficult. Uh, I have to put my favorite sponsor in there, Bespoke Financial. That's just too yeah, perfect sure. of, a, of, a, of a plug in there, but they've helped a lot of companies grow. Um, where there is a lack of capital. And yes, it's more expensive, but we just don't have a lot of options yet. Anyway. Um, yeah, listen, I mean, and, and, and Bespoke, um, they were at our show in Las Vegas. They'll be at the show in New York. Mm -hmm. um, it is a great new solution. I know that there's other groups that are coming out to be able to provide banking. We actually have one of the first mainstream national or banks, Valley Bank is going to be exhibiting at our show in New York. Um, I'm here in Washington, like Salal Credit Union, like everybody knows that they're open to cannabis banking. I bank at a credit union. They're, they're certainly a lot more. Um, credit unions friendly. have saved the day in a lot of ways. They have. Yeah, they have. And, and, and you know, I think we're going to continue to see these bankings. Again, going back to safe banking, I mean, what a critical pivot point for our industry if we can just get something so uh, fundamentally basic done right. And, you know, my local news station here in Washington, you know, talked about uh, how there have been 85 dispensary robberies this year mm. so far. Mm. Um, and, and, you know, um, you know, people are going to jail for, for, you know, somebody got killed and, um, you know, there's just, it, it's just ridiculous that we would expose not just the people working in our industry, but the general public to that type of, you know, crime and opportunity for crime, you know, it's just not even, it's, it's, it's just ridiculous, uh, you know, because the guy leaving the dispensary might have to stop at the grocery store and have a backpack full of $50,000 in cash. I mean, you know, somebody's probably watching him. Somebody's probably targeting him. And and it's just, it's enough with the violence because the people who are getting subjected to that violence, you know, they're, they're working a job at a dispensary and working behind the counter. I mean, they don't deserve to have to, you know, be exposed to that level of trauma. It, it just comes down to credit cards. You know, like like my family owns restaurants and yes, yeah, obviously some people pay in cash, but the vast majority use their credit card. And if at the end of the night you had to walk all that cash to the bank, I mean, it's just crazy. You know, it's just crazy that that's how it is in this industry. But, you know, that better than most. Um, listen, what kind of food do you guys serve at your family's restaurants? What's the name of it? Let's talk about shameless promotion. It's called Great Maple. There's four of them in Southern California. They're top 100 brunch places on open table. Um, nice. There you go. Um, yeah, my older sister. That on my life. bucket list. Good for it. You got to come. Well, come with me. We'll do it together. Um, right. So you did the first one in November. You'll have the next one in May. What did you learn from Vegas? Any lessons from from the first one out? Yeah, I, I mean, we were um, yeah, we were 
very humbly overwhelmed by the feedback we got from the community. Um, again, you know, just designing an event to focus on productivity and creating successful outcomes for our clients, first and foremost. And again, you know, being cognizant that we're in the hospitality industry. I know what I like at events. Our staff has been going to events for, for decades as well. Um, you know, doing the event during MJ Biz was a little bit of a double-edged sword. I mean, one, you know, we, we definitely benefited for putting our event uh, into the conversation at a very high level throughout the industry. Um, a lot of comparative articles that were written about us and MJ BizCon. Um, but, um, you know, it was also, there's a lot of distractive events going on and people had scheduled events outside of our events. So, you know, being able to produce a trade show and have a captive audience and have a standalone event is really important. Um, you know, we also, um, you know, we're, I think, overwhelmed by the number of comments of the level of diversity that nobody's seen at these trade shows before. And that's just, on one hand, really sad that that doesn't happen at other trade shows. But, um, you know, that was really a function of a really strong partnership with MCBA. Um, Roz McCarthy uh, and I had a great conversation about a month ago. Um, just took a little bit of time for us to kind of get everything, you know, full circle. But you know, we're working for uh, minorities for medical marijuana too, two of the most prominent groups out there that are certainly helping support uh, the BIPOC community's, you know, position in the space. We also work with um, our academy, which uh, is run by Hillary Yu out of San Francisco. And he was on the show uh, maybe a month ago. He, I, I, I mean, I. She, She's such a wonderful human being and what she is doing and what their organization, it's not just her and no more than what we do, it's just me. It's really just, you know, the opportunity to, to do some of that very kind of individualized work with people who are passionate about cannabis to help them build a business plan, help them build a pitch deck, help them figure out their forecasts or models, how to talk to investors. And that's very kind of, you know, one-to-one -one intensive, whereas our event, you know, and why this, this partnership works so great is because we can help those companies go to market. So, you know, her cohort uh, graduates, you know, come and they have display cases at our events so they can get product awareness. They can meet with retailers from around the country as well as their home state market. And then they also pitch from stage so they can raise money. And I can tell you what, there was not a dry eye in the room when our Academy cohorts pitched. Um, I mean, their stories are, just filled with hope, passion, and and also with horror and trauma. And, you know, this is an opportunity for us to um, build an industry that is, um, you know, going to, you know, be representative of the population to make sure that we are not just talking about how fucked up the governments and, and bullshit the government's war on drugs was, but actually be a part of that reparation to say, let's let's help support the communities that were most severely affected by the war on drugs. Um, you know, I didn't get arrested for cannabis in my, as, you know, as a herbal distribution specialist in high school or college, but, you know, certainly, um, you know, you could have, I could have. Yep. yep. Um, yeah, very important. I mean, I think there's this notion in cannabis that women and minorities, people of color, they have a better shot than in other industries. You think there's truth to that? Um, it's, it's still just such a kind of a crazy, you know, industry right now. And I, 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 it's hard to kind of create any type of predictive modeling to say that yes or no on that answer. Right. Right. Cause I mean, ultimately it's, 
you look at some of the data, um, we were talking about having 36% of the executive positions in the cannabis industry were filled by women and it went down to 22%. Why? We don't know. I don't know the answer to that, but um, obviously that's moving in the wrong direction. I mean, women make up over half of the population, more than half of the U.S. population. Um, you know, certainly, you know, the, the, the percentages and the disparity of the number of um, people of color or indigenous people that own and operate cannabis licenses is as far off of what is representative of our population makeup. And, um, you know, there's, this is kind of going back to New York. I mean, you know, it, it's, you know, to, let me go back to your question. Anybody opening up a brand or retail or a cultivation in this space is incredibly, incredibly difficult business. In addition to obviously the regulatory challenges that you have and possibly changing regulatory challenges, Staffing is a big issue because you need to hire people that are 21 plus to work behind your counter. Um, that's typically going to be a minimum wage job in retail. And, you know, how do you attract talent that you can keep and retain in those positions? Um, you know, but I, it, it also comes down to access to capital. And, um, you know, I think that, again, still there is a lack of, of capital investment into women-owned and BIPOC-owned businesses that needs to change. And we certainly hope to be part of that catalyst that can help change that. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so you said a lot of people compare you to MJ Biz for obvious reasons, but I actually think the better comparison is Hall of Flowers. Um, how much were you influenced or were you at all by what they did? Oh, I mean, like, like I said, this was back in 2014 and 15 when I took, you know, a, a trade show that was 20 tabletops at a racetrack and transformed it into a professional event. Um, that, um, you know, that, sorry, my dog Lucky just barged in. He's so adorable. the official mascot of MJ and Pack because he Zoom bombs us all the time. <laughs> um, but, you know, I mean, listen, Hall of Flowers is, um, you know, really interesting, you know, is, is a great event, um, you know, and, and but we were thinking, I was thinking in the sense of the CPG space long before that they even popped onto the scene. And that's a state market event. I mean, that's an event is, you know, where the brands and the retailers are specifically able to, you know, have a transactional event in and around that state market. You know, we're doing a national event. So the the, the need set that we're trying to meet isn't for a brand to come from Washington to Las Vegas or New York, or which would be a foreign market, to meet with other retailers in their state market. Because they should already be doing that, whether it's at Hall Flowers or some other type of event or through their sales teams in those markets. Well, we see the bigger opportunity that they need. A is access to capital. So by allowing the uh, outside investors into the space, um, be able to connect with brands from other states to set up licensing partnerships because you know it's it's next to impossible for an independent operator in a single state to have the extra capital to go and buy another license. It might cost as much as $20 million in some states to even apply for one. It's still gonna cost them a couple hundred thousand, fully set up another operational unit in that state, you know, from soup to nuts and be able to be competitive when they can go into those states and, and say, hey, you've already got an operating license. I would like you guys to manufacture my product because you have extra capacity and I will control the last mile with my own managed sales team. It's probably what I see as the most prominent model. And you look at companies like Old Pal. I mean, they own zero licenses in, 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 in any state. Um, and they're now operating in 10 plus states. They're a very popular brand. They've, they've chosen very specifically who they want to target and 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 talk about their brand being weed you can share, right? Um, so this isn't you know your um, you know 
$80 a, a quarter ounce, you know, Keef roll joints, um, you know, uh, and stuff that you really want to save for those special occasions. But this is stuff that you can whip this out at a party. It's, it's cost affordable. It's good weed. People are going to feel good after they smoke it. And um, it's just something that you feel good sharing with people you're around. It's kind of like, you know, keeping the case of Pat Blue Ribbon in the garage for that backyard barbecue, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's well said. When's gonna? When's the next MJ Unpacked after after May? Um, so what we're gonna do is we're planning on doing a biannual uh, event. So twice a year, uh, we'll do a spring show out on the East Coast in New York. And we'll do our fall show um, in in Las Vegas. So we'll be in Vegas September twenty eighth to the thirtieth. Um, it will be. Um, at the MGM Convention Center, which is a beautiful facility. The last one was at Mandalay Bay. So again, not only do we want to design the level of comfort that people would like to see in an event in our event, it's also the surrounding uh, venue. Um, and uh, I'm gonna give you an exclusive and break this news here. So we have um, uh, finalized an agreement so that the Clio Cannabis Awards will be held at MJ Unpacked in November, or I'm sorry, in September in Las Vegas. Really? Very cool. Very cool. Congratulations. That's fun. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so you also operate another business, MJ Brand Insights. Tell us sure. a little bit about that. So MJ Brand Insights is just, again, it's part of the same company. Um, you know, it's it's just very typical of any type of what you refer to in kind of marketing speak as a integrated media company. And, and really is, you know, we're primarily focused around, um, you know, building successful relationships in the industry through our event platform. Um, we've got a few other strategic plans that we're going to be working on and rolling out in 2023 to provide service and kind of media opportunities to the industry and, and opportunities for people to connect at a very meaningful level. Uh, MJ Brand Insights as a content platform is an opportunity for us to be able to deliver something of value to people that is part of our target audience of brand and retail operators that are, you know, thought leadership articles. We talk about, you know, the, the top emerging, you know, women-owned brands. We do some uh, content partnership with Pioneer Intelligence that provides um, uh, kind of consumer traction for brands um, uh, based on their uh, social media, their web presence, and their earned media opportunities. Uh, we have a partnership with BDSA to provide some really detailed analytics and, and data insights um, to our audience. And it's a way for us to create an exchange um, where we can give people some, some value. We ask them for their email address or maybe their eyeballs for a little bit and then promote and, and engage them to come to our events as kind of the culmination of, of, of their process through our content. You guys do any podcasts? Um, you know, we've... <laughs> We haven't yet. Um, you know, we this kind of goes back to kind of our origin story. Um, you know, we basically started this company at the end of 2019 and got funded in February of 2020, which if I would have asked anybody for a dime to invest into an events-based business in March of 2020, they probably would have either laughed at me, slammed the door in my face, or called the cops and said, there's a crazy person running around. Good for you, man. Um, Luck is sometimes better than skill, you know? Yes. Always. Uh, it's always better to be lucky than good. Um, so, you know, but the, the pandemic was an interesting period of time because, you know, first of all, we, we weren't in a position where we had lost 100% of our revenues from the year before, whether that was, you know, the 35 plus million that MJ Biz generates at their event, or if it was, you know, a smaller amount at some of these more regional shows, we had an opportunity to go out and provide solutions, build our database, build our relationships, establish our brand, build our infrastructure, hire our team, 
and really be very kind of objective focused for 2020. Um, we did go out and raise some additional capital in the beginning of 2021 to kind of you know top off the tank to kind of uh, kind of take two. Um, I kind of revert, refer to 2020 as year zero in our uh, projections um, <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Um, so so we um, you know we were able to and, I, and and because of the pandemic and and recognizing that you know probably like quarter three of 2020, people are saying, well, events are going to start coming back in quarter two of 2021, knowing that it's never going to do, nobody wants to be first. It's going to be a little bit of a later start. So, you know, I really projected and anticipated that every event was going to try to cram into a three or four month window from September to November of 2021. And that meant that people weren't going to be going to an event every other month. They would probably be going to one or two events um, based on that. And, you know, as MJ Biz was the biggest, and Vegas is such a great backdrop to host an event. I lived there for 15 years. I've been doing events in that town for 30 years. Um, you know, it just it, it was a right fit for us to be able to kind of debut ourselves. Um, but um, you know, it's uh, it, it's just going to be it's it's going to be an opportunity for us to kind of accelerate our show. And now that we have a proof of concept, now that we've gone and shown people that there is a better way to design an event that focuses on return on objectives, return on experience, return on investment. Um, you know, we had foosball tables and, and video games and, you know, stuff for people to just kind of relax and feel comfortable, like we're inviting them into our home, um, as opposed to kind of going to Home Depot and spending the entire weekend there. <laughs> home Depot. You didn't answer the question about podcasts. Yeah, so good question. So anyway, through that period of time, we had a very, very thin team. And the reason that was the whole point of it as I went through that long uh, dissertation it was really, you know, kind of a core team of four of us, uh, Morgan Worley, uh, Wendy Campbell, my wife, Kim, and myself, um, that really kind of needed to, you know, be very resourceful and industrious to kind of get that first event. We brought on some contractors as we led into the event. Um, and now that we're scaled up and moving forward, we are going to spend some time uh, after our New York event to really explore what we can do to deliver meaningful content to our audience. Uh, podcasts are certainly part of that conversation. Um, there's a lot of great podcasts out there. I don't know how we can possibly get airtime against. You there's know, a lot of um, shitty ones too. <laughs> yeah, um, it was kind of like when Clubhouse came on the scene. No disrespect to Clubhouse, and I just did like a two-hour Clubhouse with um, Dave Palachek, who wrote Branding Bud, and it was it was a blast to do that, and it was very engaging. But like when Clubhouse came out, I was like, you're creating a, a stage that anybody can go and basically take over regardless of qualification, regardless of how they're curating the content, regardless of experience of them being able to create content that is focused and meaningful. And it just, it was, I think there was, you know, some really great stuff on there, but again, a lot of it was just out there. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think there are a lot of podcasts out there. Um, but yes, we do plan on, on, on doing some, and I would love to have you as one of our guests. Well, let's talk about it, man. I, I interview brands all the time. So maybe we could do some syndication or I'll do something special for you. I don't know. We'll talk offline about it. Um, so you mentioned you started MJ BizCon in a lot of ways. I know not just you, but, you know, you were you were running it. Uh, Dope Magazine before that. That's quite the uh, the legacy in cannabis. Um, Dope was on the show, too. I'm trying to remember who was on the podcast back in the day. It was three, four years ago. No, more than that. Man, Probably, Dan, Probably Dan, yeah. Um, Dave. Dave Tran. Dave, sorry. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dave Tran, of course. Um, 
Let's talk about a couple hot topics. You, you got some good opinions in this industry. So yesterday at the uh, Benzinga Cannabis Conference, I don't know if I'm supposed to say that name, but a lot of people are there this week. One of the big topics that came up was the black market and what MSOs should do about it, if they have any obligation to do it, or if Wall Street has any obligation to do anything about it. What's your thoughts on the black market and what do we do about it? Well, you know, first and foremost, um, you know, as I have been correct in the past, um, you know, the term black market is inferring that uh, based on the color, it's illegal, right? So we try to use the term illicit market um, or uh, unregulated market uh, a lot more frequently than saying black market. Yeah. I know it's, I know People it's the gray market. They say, yeah, you know, gray market. Yeah. Green. I mean, there's all sorts of euphemisms for it. Right. And sometimes, you know, it's like, Hey, hey listen, it's the illegal market. See, it's the untaxed unregulated market that existed for millennia before, um, you know, we got into this kind of conundrum with, you know, tricky Dick Nixon, you know, basically um, creating a war on drugs based on false pretenses to marginalize black communities and hippies so he could get back into office. So here we are, fast forward, and, and don't forget about, um, um, as Anslinger was, no, it was uh, Hearst, uh, William Hearst, the yellow press publisher that also, um, you know, vilified people of color in and around cannabis under false pretenses. But, you know, here we are full circle and you know, the illegal market, it's, it's, you know, I think it's a function of the state regulations and um, it's not an easy solution. And, you know, you're asking people that don't really understand the market. And certainly a lot of people from our industry have been very vocal and instrumental in helping shape these regulations. Um, you know, in California, I hear in the number around 70, 75% of the market still operating in the untaxed and unregulated market. And so, those people who invested money into creating a legal operation are, are, are massively disadvantaged because they got to pay ex exceptionally high taxes. They got, you know, 280E tax code, so they can't deduct normal business expenses and get taxed on their on their gross margins. Um, so, yes, it's, it's a huge problem. Now, New York, and, and, you know, there was, I saw a recent article talking about how this kind of, you know, illicit markets kind of blossomed up in New York. I mean, New York's probably like the 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 epicenter for libertarianism. Like people just do what you want to do as long as you're not fucking with somebody else's freedom. You know, it's cool. Right. And so, you know, walking down, um, you know, Broadway, you know, there's guys selling branded flower packages 10 feet away from the traffic cop. And you've got these little corner stores that are popping up and none of them are tax and regulated. So I think New York will be very swift in shutting them down. Um, probably more so than California has been able to just from a ge geogra geographical standpoint, you know, California is just such, such a massive state. Yeah, it's just a um, density question. You know, I, don't know if the MS I don't know if the MSOs are necessarily exasperating or responsible for the illicit market either. I do see that, you know, we've, we've seen states like Illinois where, you know, you've got a very heavily skewed licensure to the MSOs to set up and operate a state market like that which is, I think has, you know, been at the expense of craft cannabis, of quality cannabis, of, um, you know, really kind of creating an opportunity to, instead of having a few billionaires, but have a couple thousand millionaires um, and really kind of support that middle-class opportunity for people to have an operation and, and, and keep, that, keep that capital 
that's that's being spent on cannabis in their local community in their local community through the you know providing jobs and and the owners you know living in those communities and spending that money in those communities um so I, it's such a complicated issue but um i think that if we you know started moving towards federal legalization that would be a big game changer um you know i think that you know opening up access to safe banking uh you know reducing the risk of crime to the illegal operator to the legal operators um there's there's a need for insurance reform i mean a very good friend of ours tucky blunt who's on our advisory board you know operates blunts and mores up in the oakland area you know he had a yeah he, he got robbed the insurance company's like well we'll we'll, we'll pay you back 20 percent of what you lost i mean and oh by the way we're going to increase your premiums next year mm. um so you know i think that there's 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 a lot of things that the more the faster we can normalize this so that that cannabis businesses have the same protections for intellectual property they have the same protections for um being insured for losses um that they have the same opportunity to deduct expenses, um, all of those things are going to be really critically important. I think that that's, that's where we get to a point where we can actually move this into a legal legal industry. Will there still be moonshine operators in the cannabis space, so to speak? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, and I think that, 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 you know, allowing people to grow their own at home is, should be allowed in every state. You know, it's the same way that if I want to make my own beer or if I want to, you know, make my own prison whiskey, uh, I should be able to. Why is it that when I have this conversation with some regulated operators, they're very defensive of the illegal market as if like they're not directly impacted and if those people like should still exist in some way. Is that true? Do they deserve to be around? How should we look at it? So when you talk about the legacy opera, I mean, there's there's kind of two groups of people and kind of in that bucket. So there's legacy operators in the state of California, and based on conversations that I have had, that you know the the regulations came out and people were told, if you guys want, apply for a license, you know we'll grandfather you in. We won't ask and won't tell about what you did before that, uh, but you got to come clean and get a license. And if you don't, we're going to come after you. So it was kind of putting a gun to their head saying, we're going to either, you know, now that we know about you, we're going to arrest you or, oh, get a license and then we're going to bankrupt you through, you know, bad policy and regulatory structure. And what is a zero sum game for these people? Um, you know, so um, talking about the legacy operators and making sure that they have a seat at the table. Absolutely. Okay, that means they operated, they just didn't get busted. Um, and and but they were part of the industry before we became a legal industry. And quite frankly, I'm grateful to the fact that I was able to get weed from them uh, before we moved into a legal structured industry. And I'm sure there's a lot of other people that are very grateful to them. Um, and then I think you have the opportunists that say, you know, hey, there's these loopholes we can exploit. Um, and, you know, hey, cannabis is going to be legal here. It's decriminalized. So I can't really go to jail for doing this now. So I'm going to kind of jump in the game and kind of scramble and hustle a few bucks. I think those people can kind of, they'll find the next quick kind of loophole scam that they can jump into, whether it's, you know, selling massage bed chairs at the local yeah, mall kiosk. Yeah. yeah. Um, or uh, whatever. And, but I think that, that looking at the people that have been in operating in this industry before we had a legal market, giving them a path forward, right? And this is where New York, as I said, you know, putting up $200 million to help support some of the um, social equity applicants in the state by even providing them with retail spaces for them to operate 
um, only issuing the first hundred provisional licenses to people who have been convicted to a cannabis for for you know cannabis convictions or cannabis crimes. Now that has additional covenants, so it's not just like, hey, I got busted smoking a joint. I'm 19 years old that I can get a license, but you have to have a couple of years of, of history running a business with at least 10% ownership. So that you're probably gonna get a lot of like baby boomers and Gen Xers that were busted in the 70s and 80s for weed, might not even smoke anymore, but but have a business acumen to be able to manage a very complex business landscape and create some success for themselves. Mm -hmm. Well said, um, absolutely. So through the pandemic, um, we got a lot of virtual events. Um, why do virtual events suck so much? Yeah, so we did some virtual events when I said we kind of, you know, built our relationships or anything else. And um, yeah, I kind of felt we did them a little bit better because, again, we kept to this kind of premise that we were qualifying people to be retailers or brands. So we create a high level of connectivity. I saw some that use like avatars and people were hacking the system to throw themselves off the balcony or fly around the room. Mm -hmm. um, I, I like the one where there was like kind of standing at the entrance lobby, like kind of like puffing, like it was like from uh, I am legend, like where you just walked into a room full of zombies. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, it's just a very unnatural experience. I mean, you know, it depends on the industry. And, and so I, I'm a student in the game of cannabis. I'm a student of, of trade shows and events and media. And, you know, you look at somebody like Microsoft or Amazon that did virtual events and they saw their attendance go from 30,000 to 300,000. And so for them moving forward, obviously, there's a lot of people probably working at home. They didn't have to get their boss's permission to join or they, they did it themselves to create a learning opportunity for themselves, or they were, you know, just international people that just didn't have the ability to maybe travel over to the United States because of visa restrictions. So they saw a huge uptake into their, their, their attendance. And I think that they'll be able to carry that forward to virtual or hybrid events and create that live experience. But cannabis, I mean, it's, it's about the relationships. It's a very tactile product that you want to be able to taste, touch, smell, smoke, um, and feel. And, and so this is an industry that doesn't apply itself well to virtual events. And I think, you know, when we did our first virtual event, Brandon, I tell you, it was, it was pretty, pretty bizarre. So like, you know, we're like, all right, we've been working on this for like 60 days, nonstop, you know, 12, 14 hour days, getting everything set up. We created everybody who's at a virtual booth was highly customized. So we could take a picture of you and have you standing in your booth and you could click on that picture and talk to you. And there was product images in there. They could click on, they could pull up product specs and put all this energy and time into this stuff. And then we like open the doors and I'm sitting in my office in death, dead silence. And it's like, this, this is horrible. Like I just like the energy that I want, I want to feel around being around the people in my industry that I care about and the friends I want to connect with. I can chat with them, but I'm not going to be able to have that same level of <laughs> They close the windows and he thinks that they went away. <laughs> um, you were some, saying something about the same level of something. Yeah, it's just, you know, you, you just don't have the same level of, I mean, it's, you know, we do business with people and it's a base, this is a, an industry that's very much based on relationships. We're not buying and selling a commodity. It's not, you know, nuts and bolts. And I just need to know what the specs are. I want to be able to, you know, have a conversation with you. I want to know that you're somebody I want to do business with. I want to read your body language. Um, I want to ask other people about you and say, you know, have you done business with Brandon? Is he a stand-up guy? Do I need to watch out for anything? Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that, it's hard to really kind of facilitate 
any meaningful connections, any meaningful conversations, and any meaningful transactions. So you talk to and work with a lot of brands. Um, I think it's a really challenging time to become a brand in the cannabis industry. Um, you have any advice for them? I mean, you know, they're they're competing against the U.S. government and MSOs and Wall Street and the illegal market. You know, any advice for someone that's coming into this industry, starting a new infused pre-roll brand, whatever? You know? um, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a deep to topic to dig into. I think there's a couple of different layers here. I mean, first is that we know that a majority of consumption and, and consumer behavior is in and around flour. Um, and so, and, and then you have a lot of markets where, um, you know, the retailers or the brands I've talked to and, and that are on our advisory board that are coming to our show, it's like, there's a race to the bottom. You've got a lot of people kind of coming into the space saying, how can we create the highest THC at the lowest cost? People just want to get their high on, they don't give a shit about anything else. There's going to be segments of the market and we're going to have, again, that kind of PAPS cores, you know, Budweiser type of commodity product and we're going to have craft and premium product just like we have in the specialty beer industry and, and craft brewery industry um same thing with coffee i mean you can go you know you can't even get a cup of coffee i think for 50 cents at a gas station anymore but there used to be a day that's where you got your coffee right and it was in a styrofoam cup um and so you know now we see starbucks and people spending you know six eight ten bucks to get a cup of coffee um and they're buying on the experience they're buying on the feeling on the emotion of how that makes them feel um, you know, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's, first of all, there's arguably, there is not a national brand today because we don't have a national market. Um, there's certainly some very well-positioned brands, um, you know, Cureleaf, obviously with their select brand and Wana and, you know, um, uh, Bang Chocolates. Um, there's a lot of brand old pal and these companies wild. are in, you know, five wild, probably. Yeah. Wild, wild's another great one too. Yeah. And that's right here in our back. It's right between you and I, you're in California, I'm in Washington. So they're down in Oregon. Yeah. And listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, afraid of having a little Mary and Barry anything. Um, so How about can, How about the beverages, yeah, cans, what another great example, right? So, but the beverage categories, then it's a whole nother kind of uh, can of worms there. No pun intended, or maybe the pun was intended, <laughs> but um, you know, it's, it's, it, I think that the thing that we need to realize is that there's, there's two kind of competing forces. One, we are at the golden, we're at the dawn of the golden age of the brand. This industry has gone through a lot of transformations over the last eight to 10 years I've been in it. People didn't know what a retail or a, 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 a extraction facility or a, a gummy facility looked like. Everybody needed a machine in the corner that went bing. They needed a software, they needed light bulbs, they needed you know rolling trays, they needed nutrients. Um, and then we kind of hit this like rise of the MSO back around 2018. We saw, you know, everybody kind of rushing out to capitalize their businesses in the Canadian stock exchange, which was, you know, a little bit limited to be able to provide liquidity for these companies. And I think a lot of them probably regret doing that. Um, and, you know, now we've kind of got the MSOs that are, you know, publicly listed on the OTCs. You know, some companies are obviously trying to move up to the to NASDAQ and the, the big board, but, you know, they have access to capital to get hundreds of millions of dollars of, of senior secured debt facilities, but the independent operators don't have access to capital. So that's the biggest thing is, is for vice is make sure you are well capitalized. Find your um, uh, Uncle Scrooge McDuck that's got, you know, deep pockets that can help fuel your growth because you can't, we're going to get to a point, and this is where the, the opposing force comes in. When we do see federal legalization happen, they're already prepared 
They're incredibly well capitalized and they have tremendous operational efficiencies in the alcohol and tobacco industry. And they're gonna come and try to usurp this industry, which means a lot of the most innovative brands, some of the best products out there that you and I get to enjoy every day are probably gonna get washed out to sea because they won't have the same type of economies of scale that these large companies do. Now those companies will come in and probably buy some of the top brands in those markets, pay some premium prices, and then they're gonna try to squeeze everybody else out. Um, and, and I think that this is where we as a collective industry need to be unified to make sure that the thought leadership of our industry doesn't get usurped by alcohol, tobacco or pharmaceutical companies because they're either selling a vice or they don't care about, you know, they're, they're in the pharmaceutical case, they're extracting the intelligence and leaving the wisdom behind of what plant medicine can truly be. And so if we truly believe in our heart of hearts that this is a transformational product, plant medicine that can have a tremendous healing impact on people um, and can have a tremendous healing impact on society. Um, you know, I know there was a little bit of incident where Mike Tyson got in a little fist bite on an airplane yesterday, but hopefully yep. we avoid having bar fights because people can go and get a granddaddy purple and Coke and they're chilling the fuck out instead of getting drunk and stupid. Very well said. Uh, not many people like get drunk and beat their spouse or like do this great and beat their, yeah, domestic violence and, and, and that's what I meant. Well, uh, yeah, unacceptable. Right. But, um, or even kicking your dog. I mean, like, you know, that, you know, people make bad decisions when they're drunk and they because sure it's very diminutive on your consciousness where, you know, cannabis is very expanding on your consciousness. Let's shift to you a bit. Um, if you weren't doing this, what would you be doing? Well, I, I, I kind of stepped into the trade show space through a side door, kind of, you know, by accident. A lot of people that came into the space did so by accident. But when I saw how you can really have an exponential effect on people's lives, not just the people that are standing in a booth or selling product at a show, but you can really help accelerate an industry so it can create success for the companies. They can hire more people. It can help support their families. They might be able to send their kids to better schools. Like that means a lot to me. And that's what really, I think, drives my motor. So I don't know if I would... I mean, um, who knows? Maybe I'd be like trying to like, you know, get a job at PT Barnum Circus. I mean, I like creating the excitement, the energy inside the space. Um, I've done a couple Maybe of like live nation life. or something like that. That could be cool. You know, it, no, because I'm uh, dealing with celebrities and artists is a completely different skill, skill set than than organizing a professional trade conference. And I don't know if I have the uh, patience on um, the other side. Fair enough. Um, but, you know, um, you know, I have a couple other trade show concepts that I've had uh, cooked up for a while that I've kept in my file. And, um, you know, um, if I had my brothers, I'd be running a trade show for personal space exploration just so I could somehow manage to get a free ride on everybody's ships. Sweet. Um, <laughs> Sweet. It's just not. It's, there's not a commercial industry there yet, right? Why, why don't you create like a metaverse conference, and then you can get part of someone's yacht or something? You know, like it'd be there great. You go. <laughs> well, um, I work with a lot of. I work with a lot of our clients, and if they ever ask for some help or they need some advice, I always tell them my standard offer is that I'd be happy to help you in any way I can. I'm not going to ask for you anything except for a, I get to borrow your personal jet for one week a year if you and when you have one. Nice. That's a good one. Um, 
What kind of consumer are you? Do you like vapes, flowers, edibles? Are you a daily? What? Yeah. What kind of consumer are you? I like. I like that. There's a comedian I just recently saw. He goes, "I don't. I don't consume cannabis daily, but I do nightly." Um, <laughs> the uh, the um, you know I I think I've kind of gone through a little bit of a journey of exploration in the, in the category. Um, you know, when I, I like I said I smoked a lot of weed in high school and college. I liked it. Got out of college, it kind of wasn't really, you know, accessible to me anymore. I wasn't in the industry and everything else. I'd bump into a friend from time to time and and smoke a bowl, and I'd get too high because I just had no tolerance, and I'd be like, ah, oh, I can't do that, right? Um, so when I got in the space, I went to, um, oh gosh, I, I I need to remember what the name of the store is. ENC had one of the first um, stores in Colorado. I went and bought like a half a gram of weed rolled up a little penny and smoked it on my way to the airport. And like, I got to the airport in Denver and I'm like holding on to the railing of the moving walkway, thinking in my head, somebody better fucking slow this down or I'm going to get hurt. Right. Like I was out of my skull stone. And I just, I found like a gate that wasn't being occupied and just sat there for like two hours. Um, so I could kind of get control of my reality again. Um, and then I, you know, I started um, exploring the vape category, really liked the ability to kind of dose control so I could get a nice buzz on without, you know, you know, losing my ability to speak um, and um, even function. Um, and I, I did enjoy the vapes. And then, you know, the edibles, um, I, had a, I had a pretty interesting experience with edibles. Um, actually, this is uh, it was one of Dixie Elixir's birthday cake bars. And I was invited to go to the NCAA championship down in Arizona and they don't allow you to serve alcohol there. And so there's a bunch of other people that I've never met before. It was the Hilton brought us down there on a fam trip. <laughs> And I'm like, anybody else want some of this? And like, I took like one tenth of it. And so it was 80 milligram bar. So I only had eight milligrams. But I mean, like, I felt like I was like tripping my brains out for like eight hours. <laughs> I, I, I could, I'll send you the list of the food I ate that day. Um, but, you know, so um, I do like, you know, I do like to kind of like, you know, keep it, keep my dosage low around five milligrams. Um, if I just kind of an everyday type of thing, I like to microdose like a two and a half milligram from time to time. Um, Moxie Mints is big here in the Pacific Northwest. They've got a really great product. I'm really impressed with the innovation. Um, Juan is not up here in Washington right now, but you know, I really have enjoyed their fast acting um, edibles and, and they just introduced the live resin fast acting edible. Um, where you can get that, you know, again, mirroring that intoxication profile that of alcohol, where I could have a layered experience with multiple instances, go out to a bar, have a couple of drinks. Um, I haven't got my hands on it yet. I'm dying to try the um, product that Moon, it's spelled MXXN, uh, came out with. They've got like a tequila replacement, a gin replacement, and a like whiskey bourbon replacement that's got like six milligrams per ounce. Um, I really like to get my hands on that. I think it's in California. Um, and it gets into the beverage, right? Like, I mean, like cans kind of move to a national uh, platform, but, you know, canning and bottling and transporting liquids is very expensive. And the people that are doing, you know, beers and, and wines, you've got to go through a dealkalization process. You still got to ferment the, the beverage and then you got to dealkalize it, um, which gets expensive, right? But, you know, hopefully we can get to a point where... Um, just I can go to lunch with you and we can set it, you know, having a two martini lunch, we might have, uh, 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 you know, two Lagunitas, um, you know, IPAs for lunch. Do you like the drinks? Do you drink them? Um, I do like the drinks. Um, I, I, there's a kind of a limited availability up here. Mm -hmm. um, I've kind of kind of come full circle in my kind of, you know, journey to really, you know, enjoying flower. 
again, because I can, you know, I can smoke a bowl and I can, can kind of dose control on how many hits I'm taking. And, you know, I am, I was at a 420 golf tournament yesterday. I mean, you know, that's the type of event where, you know, you know, as soon as you spark up a joint, the guy two, two to your left's got a chaser coming around and, you know, but that was what yesterday was about, you know, kind of celebrating the industry, celebrating the plant, having, having a good time with some new friends. Sounds like a great day. Uh, I think that's a good place to start to wrap up. How can we help you? Are you hiring anything? I know you're growing. Are you raising money? How, how can we help you? Yeah, so um, we actually uh, uh, just uh, completed our C- series seed round. So, um, you know, I don't expect that we're going to need to raise money anymore um, after this this round. Um, as far as our event goes, we're looking for, you know, brands and retailers come. Retailers can tend for free if they register by the end of the day, quote, tomorrow, but really through Sunday. Um, they're really such a key part of the, you know, the, the, the infrastructure and the ecosystem. And when you think about how are we getting new consumers into this category, it's when that brand and that retailer intersect and meet with the consumer and they create, a, you know, an experience for that person that they want to come back for. Not a Maureen Dowd experience, but, you know, a positive experience that makes them want to explore the category. So, you know, really focusing on that ecosystem um, for brands, for retailers. I mean, you know, send us your news if you have some uh, to MJ Brand Insights. There's a submit news section in there. We always love telling them about stories about, you know, emerging brands and exciting stories that are happening in the space. Come to our events. Um, you know, we're building a very focused event um, that isn't. You know, we're trying to take away all of that noise in the background of people that are coming to these trade shows looking for a job or you know walking the aisles trying to sell products or or sell their wares, um, and and really have something that is hyper focused on that last intersection in our industry before we do reach the consumer and the vanguard of how we're winning over consumers in the marketplace. Awesome. If you, got money, if you got money, invest in brands. Um, there is the biggest opportunity for valuation gains right there. Um, you know, once we see, you know, the 280E, the, the safe banking, interstate commerce packs, uh, compacts or federal legalization, and those brands can start building economies of scale. Um, I think that you, you, we're, we're at that golden age where, where brands are going to own that relationship with the consumer so that we'll see who's going to be the Seagrams of cannabis who's going to be the Bacardi, you know, type of generational wealth or the Jose Cuervo family generational wealth of cannabis. Um, and that happens, that's, that's happening now in real time. Don't miss out. Good stuff. Well, I'll see you May 18th through the 20th in Manhattan awesome. for MJ Unpacked. I think I'm going to do some interviews or some podcasts or I don't know, we'll finish it. We'll figure it out. And um, it's been really fun, man. Thanks so much for coming on. I got one more plug on that. So in our, oh. in our at our Vegas show, we brought in the Blues Brothers and we did a concert to support and benefit Last Prisoner Project. We donated over $70,000 to them. So for New York, we're doing one down at Terminal 5. It's open for the registered attendees of MJ Unpacked. Uh, I got legendary uh, blues slide guitarist Roy Rogers, who played with Eric Clapton and John Lee Hooker. Um, we've got a band out of, uh, with Roots in Jamaica, and I just couldn't pass up on her name, which is Hempress Sativa. Um, but if you listen to her, she is unbelievable. And then we're closing it out with Wu-Tang Clan's Ghostface Killer. Cool. So um, this, is, this will be at a 420-friendly venue, and we are going to have a great time that night. I am excited for that. That'll be good times. That's the only reason I go to these things, like you said, is to go to the party. <laughs> All right, George, have a great one, man. Thanks again. Brandon, thanks. It's been a pleasure and an honor to be on your show today.